You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is where you'll hear about it first. Without the hype and distortion of other media sources, along the way trying to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and better informing the general public about mental health issues. And this edition of Psychiatry Today is pre-recorded to be aired on Wednesday, April the 1st, 2015. I hope that you were very mentally alert today so that no one snagged you in any silly April Fool's joke. Well, I can assure you we're not going to talk about that on tonight's show, and that is certainly not an April Fool joke in and of itself. Um, Unfortunately, there is something that I feel compelled to discuss that is nowhere near that lighthearted. In fact, it's quite a grave situation indeed. But uh, despite the fact that it's a very difficult topic to discuss, and despite the fact that it has been discussed and rehashed ad infinitum in major media outlets, uh, of course I have to talk about the airline tragedy in Europe because of the major, major mental health implications and because of reforms that need to be made urgently that uh, would prevent such a tragedy from happening again in the future. Uh, And if uh, such reforms were put in place, um, then perhaps some slight semblance of something good can come out of just such a horrific tragedy, uh, not that it would anywhere come close, making uh, the sacrifice of all those lives anywhere near worth it. Uh, So let's get into that right away. Um, Once again, and this is not the first time that it's happened, uh, a pilot, or in this case a co-pilot, has committed suicide by plane, or apparently has committed suicide by plane. A lot is still unknown uh, about the circumstances surrounding the German Wings airline crash last week, including what medical or psychological conditions co-pilot Andreas Lubitz may have had before he flew a plane carrying 150 passengers into the French Alps. The New York Times reported that Lubitz, 27 years old, did have a psychiatric condition that he hid from his employer, though the specific condition was not revealed, and that he had been evaluated at a German hospital in February and March 
for a diagnostic evaluation, but not for depression. A doctor's note was found at Lubitz's home, excusing him from flying on the day of the crash, in addition to several more torn-up doctor's notes, which support the preliminary assessment that the deceased hid his illness from his employer and colleagues, according to a statement made by prosecutors. And while training to be a pilot, according to news reports, Lubitz experienced a major depressive episode. Now, while more information is still emerging and may have already emerged between the time I recorded tonight's show and, and when it aired, and if so, how did Lubitz's mental health factor into the crash, the question arises, what goes into deeming a pilot flight-worthy? In an op-ed piece for the New York Times, former pilot Andrew B. McGee talked about the types of people he encountered in the airplane cockpit, a few of whom he called oddballs with quirks and eccentricities. He said he only received one psychological evaluation during his time in the air, a written examination early in his career. He said it asked questions like, do you ever feel angry? By coincidence, he took the exam right after watching on TV the second plane fly into the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. He passed and got the job. But he writes, perhaps, though, it's time to take a more searching interest in the minds of those to whom we entrust our safety when we fly. The industry tests its pilots regularly to see how they would handle an emergency, but it barely evaluates the risk that they might cause one themselves. All right, so let's examine this. What makes a pilot fit to fly? Of course, fit-to-fly testing begs tons of questions. What does the industry currently test for, and is it enough? How deep can officials probe into a pilot's psychological makeup, and how much can you hide from an employer? International officials have regulations in place to help prevent safety issues relating to a pilot's health. According to Laura J. Brown, Deputy Assistant Administrator for Public Affairs at the Federal Aviation Administration, pilots in the United States must have a first-class medical certificate and must pass before an Aviation Medical Examiner, or AME, before they take to the air. She says the pilot must renew the certificate every year if the pilot is under 40 years old, every six months if the pilot is 40 years or older. Pilots complete an official FAA medical application form and have a physical examination conducted by an FAA-designated AME before they are cleared to fly. The FAA medical application form includes questions pertaining to the mental health of the pilot. The AME can defer a pilot to the FAA Office of Aerospace Medicine 
if he or she believes that additional psychological testing is indicated. All existing physical and psychological conditions and medications must be disclosed. If a pilot doesn't volunteer all information about psychological or physical conditions, that person can face fines of up to $250,000. Pilots must self-disclose the information requested on medical forms so the AME can probe further into any physical or mental issues. And right there, this is at the heart of why the system doesn't work and why there needs to be reform. Uh, it is up to pilots to self-disclose mental health issues. They know very well if they disclose them, they'll be grounded, they won't be able to work, uh, perhaps their career will be over. So of course they're not going to want to do that. Now upon examination, an AME does typically ask questions directly related to a pilot's psychological condition. In addition, if the pilot experiences an incident on the job or otherwise that appears to be medically related, the FAA requests more details about whether or not that person should continue to hold his or her medical certificate. The FAA reports that in 2013, for the United States, there were 1.1 fatalities per every 100 million people on board commercial aircraft carriers. A staggeringly fantastic record of safety. To put that into perspective, there were 10.3 deaths per 100,000 people from motor vehicle accidents in the United States in 2013, according to the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. I think the point I'm trying to make here is that even though there's certainly a lot wrong with the system, statistically anyway, it seems to be working well enough to keep the rates of fatalities incredibly low. Obviously, this is meaningless uh, to the families of those who lost their lives in incidents such as what took place recently in the French Alps. Um, and uh, other incidents such as uh, shooting down the uh, Malaysian airline over Ukraine and the <clears throat> other Malaysian airliner that's been missing for now over a year. <clears throat> now, the United States airline industry remains the largest and safest aviation system in the world as a result of the ongoing and strong collaboration among airlines, airline employees, manufacturers, and government. Pilots of our airlines undergo rigorous evaluations in the hiring process, which helps to ensure the safety of the United States aviation system and its passengers, crew, cargo, and aircraft. While working at an airline, all pilots have to regularly undergo thorough medical examinations to maintain their license. 
Airlines frequently conduct fitness for duty testing on pilots and have two pilots in the cockpit at all times to ensure the plane's safety. Notably, the German wings crashed happened while only Lubitz was in the cockpit. It is incredible to me that while this is standard practice for United States airlines, especially in the wake of the uh, airline hijackings and attacks of September 11, that this is not the case elsewhere in the world. And only now, after this incident, are other countries scrambling to put this policy in place for their airlines. Well, we're going to have to stop here and take a commercial break. More on this and other mental health-related issues when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about the horrible tragedy of the uh, German Wings airliner that the co-pilot deliberately crashed uh, as an act of both suicide and homicide. And we're examining the mental health implications uh, in a broader sense uh, of airline pilots in general. Now, both management and unions of uh, airlines and airline pilots have intervention programs to intercept pilots who appear to be at risk. And those programs, along with our practices in the United States of always having two people in the cockpit, have been successful. The FAA discloses the international airlines that it deems unsafe to fly. But Germany's Lufthansa, of which German Wings is a subsidiary, is certainly not one of them, not even close 
In fact, at the beginning of 2015, Lufthansa was named one of the world's safest airlines. But that doesn't mean certain mental health conditions cannot go undetected, as apparently was the issue in Lubitz's case. According to aviation psychology expert Diane Demos,、uh, <clears throat> the German airline is a worldwide leader in cognitive and psychological testing among its pilots. She says Lufthansa has one of the most complete. An exhaustive selection processes that there is. It's days and days of standardized testing, all sorts of cognitive abilities, interviews with clinical psychologists. It is extensive. Now, if an airline like Lufthansa, supremely dedicated to the safety of its passengers, can't prevent a crash of this magnitude, who can? Well. <clears throat> Uh, as we've cited the statistics before,、uh, air travel is actually unbelievably safe. Can perfect safety ever be achieved? Well, that's of course something we'd all like to have,、uh, but obviously we're not there yet. Human beings are complex, and they change.、Uh, what needs to change to account for this? Is the way that mental health issues are handled for airline pilots. <clears throat> the effects of the stigma of depression and other mental health problems are at the heart of what's wrong and what needs to change. While more information is needed to fully assess the state of Lubitz's mental health at the time. He was flying German Wings Flight 9525. One thing is for sure: mental disorders, including depression, still carry a stigma. Over the years, mental disorders have been seen mistakenly as a failure of an individual's will, or a moral defect, or a lack of character. Such negative views of mental suffering obviously create barriers. For anyone who might be suffering from a mental disorder, from coming forth and seeking help, or fear of being seen in such negative ways, men raised in Western culture, like Lubitz, may also have additional difficulties in being open and accepting of emotional issues like depression, which could be a potential reason. To hide this sort of condition from an employer, gender socialization adds another layer of stigma, in that men have traditionally been socialized not to show emotions, not to show sadness, not to cry, or not to seek help for fear of appearing weak. And then you layer on top of that. The fact that if they ask for help, it puts their job in jeopardy. So men have this broad stigma that mental disorder carries in our culture, plus the specific stigma of what it might mean to a man who must seek help for an emotional problem. And then, if you're an airline pilot, the knowledge that coming forward and asking for help for such a problem could mean your career. Now, although depression 
is a fairly common and straightforward diagnosis in the medical community. Studies on the way male depression presents uh, are ongoing. There is some research that is beginning to emerge that suggests that for some men, depression may be manifest in what are called atypical or masculine-specific symptoms, such as irritability, self-destructive behavior, and alcohol or drug abuse. In addition, depression can overlap with other issues like anxiety disorders and substance abuse, which may negatively impact a person's overall well-being and stability. <clears throat> but let's get back to Andreas Lubitz for a moment. It's been well documented in the media that uh, they have found evidence that he had an illness that he was getting treatment for on some level but was hiding it from his employers. And this is not at all unusual, folks. Um, many pilots do this because they know if they disclose freely, it means their job. Uh, but <clears throat> not all of them are committing suicide by taking 150 people to their death with them. Uh, so what about Mr. Lubitz and why he would do such a thing, including why he would just calmly, without even breathing heavily, take 10 minutes to bring the plane to a fiery end, obliterated into the French Alps, while listening to the pilot pounding on the door trying to get in and listening to the passengers screaming, as they realize they're headed to certain death. This is very difficult even for a mental health professional such as myself to be able to explain. In certain states of severe depression, when someone is suicidal and they see no way to go on with their life, uh, it may completely disconnect centers of appropriate judgment. And uh, indeed, um, while many people consider suicide to be uh, a selfish and cruel act, even if no one else is hurt, uh, this is the ultimate in cruelty, uh, the way he took so many people with him. We'll never know what his mindset was. I think it's fair to speculate that there was something that happened in his life that made him very angry and very resentful, um, either a real or perceived slight uh, to his ego, and uh, his uh, anger resulted in his decision to lash out in such a horrifically negative way that even though he no longer wanted to live, he would secure his place in uh, infamy uh, by doing what he did and taking so many people with him. It may perhaps also be the case that uh, due to his depressed state, he <clears throat> lost track of the fact that the passengers are the people that he's supposed to serve and protect. And instead, in his uh, negative mindset and his state of depression, he came to become disconnected from them and just see them 
as bodies who were incidental uh, to the work that he did and to the other issues that he's dealing with in his life. And uh, please, by the way, no one should take what I'm saying as excusing his behavior. Quite the contrary, just trying to fathom some explanation as to how a human being could arrive at such a terrible mental state and commit such an unspeakable act, not just against himself, but all these other innocent people. <clears throat> the larger issue of what Lubitz did, as I've said, is that there needs to be reform in the way that mental health issues are handled in the airline industry for pilots. Um, in the United States, it's like this. If you disclose to the AME that you have a mental health issue and you disclose that you're taking medication for it or you start taking medication for it, you're grounded. That's pretty much it. Uh, so uh, until fairly recently, uh, if I were seeing a pilot, um, I could not make anything but just a vague uh, wastebasket-type diagnosis, uh, nothing that would make a red flag that would cause them to fail their medical examination and result in their being grounded. I could not prescribe them medication, uh, or that's it. They're grounded. And, <clears throat> you know, once they're grounded for an issue like this, it may take quite some time for them to ever be able to get back in the air, if at all. And in the meantime, of course, I mean, how are they going to support their family? Now, about three or four years ago, instead of banning the use of all antidepressant drugs, I mean, literally, all antidepressant drugs were off limits for commercial airline pilots to take, all of them. Uh, three, four years ago or so, the FAA Medical Division finally relented, and they said, okay, if a pilot needs to take something, they can be on one of these, and it's a very small list. I think it's basically just Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft, the oldest of the newer generation of antidepressants. Uh, Selexa may be in there, too. And uh, if someone's been on stable doses of that for, I think, a couple of years uh, and their condition is stable, then they can still fly. They don't have to be grounded. Now, no one really knows why they chose those few medications. Uh, as I said, they're the oldest of the newer generation of antidepressants, so they've been around the longest, and I think it's fairly safe to say that it's not likely that they're going to uh, interfere with the pilot's functioning. Um, but the older generation antidepressants all were very sedating. So that's probably why they didn't want pilots taking those. All right, we have a pause for a commercial break. We'll be back with more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. 
Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, talking about the mental health implications of the crash of German Wings Flight 9525. Now, right before the break, I was telling you how it's only in the past couple of few years that in the United States the FAA will allow airline pilots to fly if they're on antidepressants, and only a very short list of them, right? Because the older ones uh, were too sedating, and you, you know, you wouldn't want pilots to be less than alert because of their medication. Uh, whereas the newer ones are not particularly sedating, would not be expected to interfere with their level of alertness enough to interfere with their flying. But I ask you, as the general public the flying passenger, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a pilot flying your plane who's extremely anxious and or depressed in a horrible state of mind, hiding it from his colleagues and his employer and the government agency regulating his profession so that he can keep his job? Or would you rather have your airline pilot be someone who was getting appropriate medical care for their mental health condition, taking medication but feeling well and perfectly able to be alert and focused enough to fly a plane. Which would you rather have? I think the choice is clear. So in my opinion, while the FAA grudgingly decided to approve this small, limited list of antidepressant medications that pilots may be on uh, under very limited, strict circumstance. This needs to be opened up some more in terms of a broader array of medications they may be allowed to take to account for the fact that response to antidepressants is such a highly 
individual issue that it's very conceivable, I assure you, that any given person, much less an airline pilot, could try all of the medications on that very short list and not respond well to any one of them. Uh, and furthermore, to say not only can you take whatever medication is best for you according to what decision you and your doctor make, uh, but as long as you're under active treatment, feeling well, and do not show signs of impairment, then you may fly. Uh, perhaps there would have to be a brief period of grounding uh, to evaluate fitness to fly, but that would not entail the threat of permanently losing one's job. And furthermore, that there would still be some salary that the pilot would receive during this evaluation period, uh, again, so to take the threat of loss of income, loss of job out of the situation, uh, which right now the, these threats of loss of money and income and job are what are preventing pilots from openly disclosing that they have conditions like this and from seeking help from them. Uh, it's, uh, again, not to make excuses for the horrible thing Lubitz did, but, but this is why. Okay, because if he openly discloses what's going on, he knows he loses his job. Uh, the system itself uh, has the wrong type of incentives. Uh, it incentivizes pilots not to get help for their mental health conditions, and if they are, not to report them. Uh, and that's what needs to change, not just here in the United States with the FAA and the way that medical examinations are done, but for commercial pilots all over the world, just like it shouldn't only be the United States who saw fit to ensure that there's always two people in the cockpit at all times. That should have been the case all around the world, shockingly was not with tragic results. Well, in any case, to get back to what I was saying when I first introduced this topic, uh, I, I sincerely hope that out of this horrific tragedy and senseless loss of life, that what good can come of it is that there is needed and true reform in the way mental health issues are dealt with in the commercial airline pilot industry, and uh, that's something that is long overdue, and uh, it's a shame that it would take tragedies such as this to finally get that to come to fruition. All right, well, we'll leave it at that and move on to other mental health-related topics. There have been a lot of articles that I've seen about a new diet which purportedly can protect against Alzheimer's disease. Now, that certainly sounds like a bold promise. And, you know, I often get questions from people, well, you know, isn't there something I can do about my depression or anxiety or bipolar illness uh, other than taking medication? Uh, what about eating a good diet? And I'm a strong advocate of eating a healthy diet to maintain 
a healthy mind. Uh, regular listeners to the show have often heard me talk about how a healthy diet for the heart is also a healthy diet for the mind. That is to say, lean meats and minimal fat and sugar and fresh fruits and vegetables and foods rich in antioxidants like nuts and berries. <clears throat> and uh, so this obviously caught my, my eye, this MIND diet, they call it, M-I-N-D, um, for preventing Alzheimer's disease. Now, it's, it's quite a bold statement because Alzheimer's disease has so many factors, not the least of which are genetic. Uh, so really, there's only so much that diet could do, even if it were found to be the case that this was the perfect diet to forestall Alzheimer's disease. Well, in any case, let's take a look at what this one article about this diet says. Um, <clears throat> this new diet, uh, known by the acronym MIND, M-I-N-D, could significantly lower a person's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease even if the diet is not meticulously followed, according to a paper in the March edition of the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, uh, the journal of the Alzheimer's Association. Now, MIND actually stands for Mediterranean-intervention for neurodegenerative delay. It's a case of uh, coming up with an, <clears throat> uh, a, a full name for a catchy acronym of MIND. Again, Mediterranean-intervention for neurodegenerative delay. Now, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet are already fairly well known in terms of minimizing risk of cardiovascular problems such as high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. So right off the bat, you know that this MIND diet is uh, derived from and based on these other diets. Now, according to the study, this MIND diet lowered the risk of Alzheimer's disease by as much as 53% in participants who adhered to the diet rigorously and by a still fairly robust 35% in those who followed it only moderately well. Now, let's uh, examine what this MIND diet is. Uh, you eat at least three servings of whole grains, a salad, and one other vegetable every day, along with a glass of wine, snacks most days on uh, which are nuts, uh, not other snacks, but nuts, which are a healthy sn a snack. Beans every other day, poultry, and berries at least twice a week, and fish at least once a week. Okay, so uh, again, a very wholesome, healthy diet. Whole grains, salad, vegetable, uh, nuts, beans, um, nuts uh, and berries, known to have healthy antioxidants that specifically help the brain. Uh, beans help lower cholesterol. Uh, poultry is low in fat. So is fish, and fish has omega-3s, which uh, we know are good for the heart and the brain. 
So there you go. Very, very healthy diet. Uh, so really, is there anything about the foods in this diet that specifically is preventing the development or onset of Alzheimer's or delaying it? Or is it just the fact that this diet does not include fat and sugar? Well, I'm not sure if the study would be able to get at that. But in any case, uh, the MIND diet was developed based on information that has accrued from years' worth of past research about what foods and nutrients have good and bad effects on the functioning of the brain over time. This is the first study to relate the MIND diet to Alzheimer's disease. And to get back to the name behind the acronym, it is a hybrid of the Mediterranean and the DASH diet. DASH is another acronym which stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. Both this Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet have been found to reduce the risk of cardiovascular conditions, like we said before, uh, it reduces the risk of high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. Some researchers have found that these two other diets, the Mediterranean and the DASH diets, provide protection against dementia as well. Well, really, that's not a coincidence because, again, anything that's healthy for the heart and the major blood vessels that supply it is also healthy for the blood vessels that supply the brain and, therefore, uh, that would decrease the risk of dementia. Now, in this latest study, they compared the MIND diet to the other two diets. People who were very adherent to the DASH and Mediterranean diets also had reductions in Alzheimer's disease, 39% less with the DASH diet, 54% less, less with the Mediterranean diet, but they got negligible benefits from moderate adherence to either of the other two diets, whereas with the MIND diet, even if you were only half-heartedly adherent, you got benefits. We'll have more on this and other mental health issues when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. 
ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the MIND diet. Again, MIND standing for Mediterranean Dash, Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay, which one study found significantly decreases the risk of Alzheimer's disease much more so if you adhere to the diet strictly, but substantially even if you don't stick to it strictly. Now, speaking of sticking to the diet, it is considered to be a lot easier to follow than the Mediterranean diet, which calls for daily consumption of fish as opposed to just once a week or more. And the Mediterranean diet also calls for three to four daily servings of each of fruits and vegetables, which is maybe a little much for some people to get in. The MIND diet has 15 dietary components, including 10 brain-healthy food groups, green leafy vegetables, other vegetables, nuts, berries, beans, whole grains, fish, poultry, olive oil, and wine. And again, uh, those of you who know something about the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet see a lot in common with it. And then there are five unhealthy groups uh, that you're supposed to avoid, which comprise red meats, butter, stick margarine, cheese, pastries and sweets, and fried or fast food. Uh, again, this is all just common sense. Everyone knows what foods are good for them or not. And again, uh, all these healthy foods are, are what we already know prevents high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. And all the unhealthy food groups are the ones that we know increase the risk of those disorders. Uh, so it just kind of, again, gets back to what's healthy for the heart is healthy for the brain. Now, with the MIND diet, a person who eats at least three servings of whole grains, a salad, and one other vegetable every day, along with a glass of wine, snacks most days on nuts, has beans every other day or so, eats poultry and berries at least twice a week, 
and fish at least once a week benefits from the diet. However, he or she must limit the intake of the designated unhealthy foods, especially butter, uh, keep it to less than a tablespoon a day, cheese, and fried or fast food, keeping that to less than a serving a week for any of the three, to have a real shot at avoiding the devastating effects of Alzheimer's disease, according to the study. Why not just avoid them completely? Although some people admittedly find that complete deprivation uh, to be too difficult, and uh, for some people, allowing them to have those things infrequently will help them be better able to stay on track. Now, the MIND diet was not an intervention in the study. Uh, researchers looked at what people were already eating. Participants earned points if they ate brain-healthy foods frequently and avoided unhealthy foods. The one exception was that participants got one point if they said olive oil was the primary oil used in their homes. Again, this comes from the Mediterranean diet. Berries are the only fruit specifically to make the mind diet. Blueberries are one of the more potent foods in terms of protecting the brain, and strawberries have also performed well in past studies of the effect of food on cognitive function. The study enlisted volunteers who were already participating in the ongoing Rush Memory and Aging Project, which began in 1997 among residents of Chicago area retirement communities. Uh, Rush refers to the hospital and clinic in Chicago area and the senior public housing complexes. An optional food frequency questionnaire was added from 2004 to February 2013, and the MIND diet study looked at results for 923 volunteers. A total of 144 cases of Alzheimer's disease developed in this group. Alzheimer's disease, which takes a devastating toll on cognitive function, is not unlike heart disease in that there appear to be many factors that play into who gets the disease, including behavioral, environmental, and as we said before, genetic components. With late-onset Alzheimer's disease, with that older group of people, Genetic risk factors are a small piece of the picture. Past studies have yielded evidence that suggests that what we eat may play a significant role in determining who gets Alzheimer's disease and who doesn't. When the researchers in the new study left out of the analyses those participants who changed their diets somewhere along the line, say, on a doctor's order after, the, after a stroke, they found that the association became stronger between the mind diet and favorable outcomes in terms of Alzheimer's disease. That probably means that people who eat this diet consistently over the years get the best protection.
In other words, it looks like the longer a person eats the MIND diet, the less risk that person will have of developing Alzheimer's disease, as is the case with many health-related habits, including physical exercise, you'll be healthier if you've been doing the right thing for a long time. So it's not just how closely you adhere to the diet that gives you the best protective benefit, it's how long you've been on the diet. Now, the researchers admit that the results need to be confirmed by other investigators in different populations and also through randomized trials, that would be the best way to establish a cause and effect relationship between the MIND diet and reductions in the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Now, along the lines of diet and mental health, the next subject on tonight's program is that a high-fat diet alters behavior and produces signs of brain inflammation. Let's see how that happens. Now, high-fat diets have long been known to increase the risk of medical problems, including heart disease and stroke, like we just talked about. But there is growing concern that diets high in fat might also increase the risk for depression and other psychiatric disorders. A new study published in the current issue of Biological Psychiatry raises the possibility that a high-fat diet produces changes in health and behavior, in part by changing the mix of bacteria in the gut, also known as the gut microbiome. The human microbiome consists of trillions of microorganisms, many of which reside in the intestinal tract. These microbiota are ex essential for normal physiological functioning. However, research has suggested that alterations in the microbiome may underlie the host's susceptibility to illness, including neuropsychiatric impairment. So, of course, what we eat would directly affect the gut microbiome. This led researchers at Louisiana State University to test whether an obesity-related microbiome alters behavior and cognition, even in the absence of obesity. What they did was they took non-obese adult mice. They were conventionally housed and maintained on a normal diet, but received a transplant of gut microbiota from donor mice that had been fed either a high-fat diet or a controlled diet. The recipient mice were then evaluated for changes in behavior and cognition. Yes, researchers can actually look at cognition in mice. I know that seems strange. The animals who received the microbiota shaped by a high-fat diet showed multiple disruptions in behavior, including increased anxiety, impaired memory, and repetitive behaviors. Further, they showed many detrimental effects in the body, including increased intestinal permeability and markers of inflammation. Signs of inflammation in the brain were also evident and may have contributed to the behavioral changes. 
This paper suggests that high-fat diets impair brain health, in part by disrupting the symbiotic relationship between humans and the microorganisms that occupy our gastrointestinal tracts. Indeed, these findings provide evidence that diet-induced changes to the gut microbiome are sufficient to alter brain function even in the absence of obesity. This is consistent with prior research, which has established an association between numerous psychiatric conditions and gastrointestinal symptoms, but unfortunately the mechanisms by which gut microbiota affect behavior are still not well understood. Further research is necessary, but these findings suggest that the gut microbiome has the eventual potential to serve as a therapeutic target for neuropsychiatric disorders. Well, obviously there's more work that needs to be done. Uh, they've established this, at least this one study, in a rodent model, uh, but, you know, obviously there's a longer way to go to test the theory out. Um, if uh, this logic follows, then they should be able to find some ways of manipulating the gut microbiome to therapeutically alleviate uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and then once that uh, technique is refined in the rodent model, of course, it would have to be tested in humans. Uh, a very interesting and even fascinating and exciting notion that someday, uh, in addition to prescribing antidepressants, uh, a psychiatrist such as myself might also be prescribing or recommending a certain probiotic to promote mental health. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed this information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we meet again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.